Hello. Welcome back to the ancient art of modern warfare. These are bite-sized podcasts which address the enduring elements of armed conflict. I'm Chris Mayer, and my podcast today is dedicated to my son, Senior Airman Miles Mayer, U.S. Air Force, stationed in the Republic of Korea. The last episode introduced the concept of honor in war. This is really a very important concept and one which we cannot dismiss in only 10 or 12 minutes. But before going into that further, and I have another great person who will help me discuss honor, I need to take a step back and talk about the whole notion of democratic peace. Just so that you know that this is a small d democratic and doesn't refer to any political party. As I said in the first episode, these podcasts will avoid political partisanship. By democratic in this case, I'm referring to governance of the people, by the people, and for the people. I've been told recently that these podcasts seem to be intended for a select audience. And maybe that's true if by select, one means all Americans as being exceptional. Or beyond that, all citizens of republics founded on democratic principles, as described by Immanuel Kant, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, those which derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. In that case, these podcasts are for a select audience, and that audience includes all people who embrace their duty to participate in their government and make their voices heard in their government's decision-making on national defense. This, then, leads to the idea of democratic peace and why it's so important for all citizens to understand the nature and the character of war. Less than a decade after the U.S. Constitution was written, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote a paper on the notion of perpetual peace. In it, he expressed an opinion, an opinion that was shared by Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson, that democracies were less likely to go to war than other forms of government, and that wars between democracies, or republics based on democratic principles, would never happen. Therefore, if all countries were republics founded on democratic principles, then the world would live in a state of perpetual peace. The world today is still far from that ideal, and it's unlikely that we'll ever see that in our lifetimes, if it ever happens at all. However, as the United States came out of the Civil War and demonstrated that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people can endure, some people began to believe that if democratic principles could be spread out, if more countries would come, become democratic countries, then there would be fewer wars. This idea was the driving force in the United States' engagement in the Spanish-American War, President Wilson's encouragement to enter World War I, in his words, to make the world safe for democracy, and the Wilsonian principles that formed the foundations for the League of Nations. But why did Kant, Wilson, and others believe that the idea of democratic peace was possible and believe it so strongly that the United States entered a world war to help promote that goal? They believed a republic depends on the consent of its citizenry to enter or prosecute a war. The requirement to mobilize that support and overcome regional, demographic, and economic interests would serve as a break on any movement towards war and limit the duration and magnitude of war. In particular, Kant believed that when the people who have to fight, 
those who have to pay the costs of war from their own resources, who have to repair the devastation war leaves behind, and those who would be loaded with a heavy national debt because of that war, would, in his words, be very cautious in commencing such a poor game. In other words, the citizens who have to bear the burden of the war would stop their governments from going to war, except in the most extreme circumstances, or when they themselves were attacked by another country. I think it's interesting that this same basic premise was the foundation for the Italian general Giulio Douay's theory of air power, a theory that was also adopted by U.S. air power theorists such as General Billy Mitchell. His idea was that by successfully attacking civilian population centers and means of production, the people of the opposing state would rise up and demand an end to the war. In practice, it's had pretty much the opposite effect. Although the war on Japan was ended with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it wasn't because the people rose up and demanded an end to the war. Rather, it was because the emperor ended the war to protect his people. The first indication that the notion of perpetual peace might have some flaws in it came just as Kant was finishing his theory. The French Revolution was supposed to be a true democracy expressing the will of the people. But it was, for the first time in history, nationalizing war with the complete mobilization of their people. As Clausewitz would later write, this became an expression of the unbridled passion of the people, sweeping along with it the moderating influences of government and the professional military. With the failure of Wilson's dreams for peace, the fire for exporting democracy and democratic peace smoldered, but never went out. The end of the Cold War breathed new heat and fuel to this idea. During the Clinton administration, in the National Security Strategy and other administration policy documents, democratic peace became the official foreign policy of the United States. The theory being that if Russia and the newly freed states of the Soviet bloc became successful democracies, then Europe, and perhaps the rest of the world, would move into a new period of sustainable peace. These ideas continued into subsequent administrations, leading to the various nation-building programs of the past few decades. So you might say, well, all of this is very interesting, but how does this relate to these podcasts being for a select audience? Regardless of whether or not the idea of democratic peace works in practice, the number of countries and the number of people in countries who live in countries governed by the consent of the governed is larger today than at any point in human history. In theory, then, the world should be a much more peaceful place. Looking around us, however, it's apparent that this is not true. For the idea of democratic peace to work, the citizens must hold their government accountable for the decisions of whether and how to prosecute a war. For the requirement of a just war to govern whether a country goes to war and how it conducts that war, decisively, quickly, in such a way as to set conditions for a better and enduring peace, then the citizens must know what the requirements of just war are. To make good judgments on whether their leaders are conducting the war in a rational manner that will, probably anyway, lead to success, 
then the citizens must understand the logic and grammar of war. They must understand what the elements of national power are and how these elements can and should work together. They must understand and have a say in what our national interests are and how developments in the world challenge vital interests or whether those developments are merely inconvenient. They must understand what justifies putting their sons and daughters at risk of their lives and bodies and make those who govern on their behalf respond to the concerns of the people. This is why I'm making these podcasts. The United States and other countries sends its officers to war colleges. The Army War College, the Naval War College, Air War College, National War College, and the Industrial College of the Armed Forces are all institutes of higher education for officers identified as potential generals. Whereas these officers previously learned tactics and the operational art, they now learn strategy. They learn how all elements of national power work together while focusing on the best way to integrate the military element of national power with the other elements. They learn how to work with other agencies of the U.S. government, with allies, and with our industry. They learn how to manage what the Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu said was the most vital interest of the state. But as someone else once said, warfare is too important to be left to the generals. I would add that it's too important to be left to politicians, too. Clausewitz wrote that the triad of war was represented by the military, the political leadership, and the people. The people, the citizens of a republic, have an indispensable role in the conduct of war. Therefore, I hope that the information in these podcasts will be like mini-seminars of a citizen's war college. As it is in the military war colleges, my intent is not to get you to agree with me about whether or how we should fight a war. It's not to get you to support or oppose any foreign policy or military operation. It's to provide the listeners with the information we all should use to hold our leaders accountable and responsive to the people they represent. Now, with that thought, please come back for the next seminar where we'll go further in examining the concept of honor in war.